It is Saturday morning. Good morning. What up? And uh, 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 so many pieces. Look, this was not planned. Right here. This part, not planned. It's going to be a problem. It's the camera. Oh, I'll just go ahead and show you right now. It's this camera. Oh, did that work? No, 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 no. Here we go. There you go. There you go. It's that camera. So you can see stuff later. But it makes a wire across the... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this can't be. We have a great show. It's going to be like three hours with a wire across the screen. Uh, talking about all sorts of things from Joe Rogan and the Lord's Supper being spiked with mushrooms in the early church to what? Uh, the, doc- the dogmatic statement of the universal atonement and what that means and why that's something that's pretty important to reckon with, even if you're going to reject it and therefore be heterodox. Um, it, all sorts of stuff. Your questions, our answers, me wrestling in real time with the craziness that we're in. Uh, If you have not yet found the Mad Christian Discord, our new online community for those of you who enjoy the conversation we have here and would like that conversation to go on throughout the week and would also like the little things that you're good at and enjoy doing to be part of something bigger that's having an impact on the world, well, then the Mad Christian Discord is, is the place for you. Tired of Facebook, tired of Twitter, tired of everything being, what, manipulated against the story that is the greatest story ever told? Well, then come join a group of a community that wants to make that story not something that we have to defend, but something we're on offense with. Mad Christian Discord launched this last week. We have a couple of open chat rooms for the initial people that want to come in. Citadelia, the land of conversation. Uh, you go check out right now a great article, snippets of it, and a link to it that I read yesterday about the the shifting of time-space experience in your mind because of COVID, and it really was quite interesting. I, I posted, I think about about a, a fifth of the article is there in quotes with some comments to think about and chat about. I haven't looked, looked this morning to see uh, if any of our, what, Jedi Knight, Anakin, Cringewalker, I think I tagged you. I think I tagged, who was the other one? I tagged a couple of our regulars uh, that are there. So again, if you like this community that you find in the chat during the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill, uh, please get into the Mad Christian Discord. Ask them how. It's free. Um, the only rules are, like, you, you can't be a troll. I mean, if you really do go in there to troll, you're going to get asked to leave. So, uh, aside from that, though, I mean, the place is there to grow, to grow in wisdom, to grow in what the scriptures say, to be Catholic Christians who are unabashedly unafraid, right? Uh, who couldn't care less or could care less. I don't know. There's a question about that later. But who who are not going to let this world stop us from being who we are, according to what the scriptures declare us to be, right? In, in the person, especially, of Jesus Christ. Okay, so with all that said, I don't have a real opening monologue for you today. I want to jump right into our questions. We may even go a solid three hours to get to Joe Rogan by the end of this thing. I mean, I could just start off with, um, am I in the wrong seat? Oh, that's why. I could just start off with telling you, you know, a little bit of what he has presupposed. And I don't, I don't think it's so clever to think that maybe somewhere in history, people who made up religions did it because they found drugs. I don't think that's necessarily clever or necessarily wrong. My guess is somewhere in history, California, a lot, you can find this. <laughs> it's, it's sort of normal. And, and Joe being a guy from formerly California, right? I think he's is he leaving or just Shapiro leaving? I can't remember. I feel like he's leaving the state too. Anyway, being from California, you know, his own brand of philosophy is its own brand of enlightenment religion. It's what he pitches. He's a guru. He's the guru of what's on the internet. And if it's on the internet, he's seen it and found it and knows how to talk about it, right? So, but the problem is when you're that wide, you can't be very deep. And so when you start talking about religions and you just start mashing Christianity into it randomly, um, well, it, it gets interesting. So I'm looking forward to that, but I'm going to save that till the end of the hour because, or end of the end of the morning because. It's not everyone's cup of tea. We're going to do a little video uh, review on what on that, if I can make it work. For now, let's see here. Let's jump right on over. Oh, kabooms. 
to uh, your questions and the answers that we can find together as we reason from the scriptures. Uh, hey, Pastor Fisk says, Daniel, was listening to you and Dr. Koontz where? Where were you listening to me and Dr. Koontz? Was it on A Brief History of Power with Two White Guys? Was that where it was? That crazy podcast with two conspiracy theorists acknowledge, acknowledging that they do, in fact, have conspiracy theories, that they believe that the zeitgeist of the present age might just, in fact, be an archdemon that's manipulating human souls, minds, consciences, bodies, and in co- economies, all for the sake of his plan to go down in a in a raging flame of glory? Yeah, we really believe that, and that there's real, you know, tracing of that in real history. Or do we think we know it all? No, but again, come check out A Brief History of Power with two white guys as we pin the tail on the Antichrist almost every other week, at least, without ever bothering, by the way, uh, to mention premillennial dispensationalism uh, on our path. So thanks for listening, uh, Daniel, and keep listening. And if you have comments or questions about that show, specifically send them to redfist.com slash contact, not send them there. Go to redfist.com slash contact. Send your questions there. Mark them, though, with a brief brief history of power, BHOP, or however you want to do it, uh, so that we know to put that question there and not here. But for now, I'll take it here. Yeah, because, yeah, no, all news is good news when it promotes your news. Uh, a rising tide lifts all ships. Uh, there is no bad publicity, that, that kind of thing. What is bad is the shadow on my face. If anyone has an idea, I know I probably just need a light, like, right here. I've got one, like, it's not super bright, but it's, like, it's so close to my face. Oh, but see, it's on this side, right? But even here, I wouldn't be able to do it. How, he's got to have a light hanging on this somehow? How would you do that? Feel free to follow that tangent thread if you want. Let's come back for the rest of us normal people <laughs> to, uh, to your question. Obviously, we cannot know, but I, will wonder, I wonder if God will let us get as far as we can go on our own before Jesus comes back. Now, I think what you are referencing there is our discussion of mankind's attempt to make a name for himself through the growth of his ability to di- dominate, manipulate, control in his environment uh, so that he can live longer, avoid death, right? Or at least seem to appear to leave a name behind him which must last for some reason. And that this has been going on for a very, very long time. Uh, and and God keeps letting it happen so as to crush other either evil men. So, the, the pattern of history is the rise of one evil force that persecutes the good, which is faith in Christ, but, uh, you know, the, the church, as we want to call it. This, there's a lot in that statement, though. I'm not just talking about New Testament. But persecutes those who believe in the true God, right? The evil rises to persecute those who are, are, believe in the true God, and this evil is personified in a human who does this. Nephilim, I, know, I don't know, you know. Um, uh, then there arises another one whom God allows to arise in his evil so that he might crush the first to submit him. But then that one always gets crushed too. And, and history of empires all the way back is always kind of that just happening one over the other. Pride comes before the fall. Uh, even the pagans would realize that uh, – or used to realize, used to say that a life of luxurious wealth and ease makes you weak and, and unable to stand and eventually get knocked over because you're just licentious effectively. And I love listening to Dan Carlin's hardcore history and especially when he says how all the historians today say, well, that's just nonsense. Ha! They ain't watching real close to the present, are they now? In any case. Um, your question, though, is like about the present then. So in that rising and falling, we see all these nations coming up and down, these empires going and for- going forward and back. You know, Some rule more, some rule others. If you're worried about world domination, the Mongols almost did it with one half the planet in a way that no one's done it. Britain did it with the whole planet in a way that no one's done it. The U.S. is doing it already economically in a way that no one's doing it. So, so what's going to come next and what technologies are there that make it all possible, right? How much of the study of the created order will God allow us to understand before it destroys us. And isn't that sort of the question you're going to get to? I wonder if human endeavor will be allowed by God to reach its peak so as to be shown not to work. That is, will we be able to achieve the greatest achievement in all of mankind and it will be the destruction of the universe? 
so that it can show that, yeah, we really needed God to begin with. Yeah, it's interesting, right? That's a, that's a really interesting question, and it really fits with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, where God declares pretty firmly his intention from the beginning is to, to make the wisdom of the wise into the greatest folly that there is, and that the more you attach yourself to the wisdom of the wise contradistincted to or against the wisdom of God, the more likely it is that you just be shown to be a total fool, even though your whole life, it seems to make sense, right? That's, that's 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, and that you know this when you look at the cross of Jesus, and I mean a cross with Jesus on it, because that doesn't make sense. It hurts. It's, it's like, what's going on here? This is wrong, and yet that's the greatest good that there ever was, right? So, so 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, trying to help that poor little church with all of their catastrophes going on, completely got their nose tweaked the wrong way, focused on all the wrong battles. Hey, don't you know, as St. John would say, that, en- that love with the world is enmity against God? I mean, did you ever read that one? Be like, why are we, then why is my church so in love with the world? Why am I so in love? Well, we'll be fine, I'm sure. I'll just keep reading, right? <laughs> so, like, hmm, will it be allowed to get that point? Now, th- your question clearly is a speculation question, right? We, no one knows the day or the hour. The only sign that we are given that something must occur before Jesus comes back in the scriptures proper, not in the nonsense where the Old Testament doesn't get fulfilled by Jesus and you think it's still going to happen. Weird, people. Weird that you would think that. Anyway, um, in, aside from that, in New Testament senses, there is one thing we're told that, that must happen before the end can come, and that is that the, the holding of the man of lawlessness, whatever the heck that means, must be undone. Whatever that means. And if you think you know clearly, just, just pause for a moment there and acknowledge that 2 Thessalonians is not the easiest book to understand in the whole Bible. And if you're just waltzing in there like you're going to be Mr. Smarty Pants and fix everything no one else for 2,000 years figured out, then you're probably wrong before you start. Because that's the whole point of the wisdom of the wise being smashed that we were just talking about, right? So, so, so to know who the man of lawlessness is, I would contend you should ask the people who lived back then. And what they tell you is it's effectively going to be Caesar and some connection between Caesar and the church that leads to persecution. Like a lot of the stuff the New Testament ultimately does. Paul, the guy who's writing this, and we'll look at 2 Timothy a little bit later this morning. And we'll look at it this weekend at my church actually pretty tightly. Uh, Paul writing Second Timothy from prison, knowing he's going to die in Nero's court, likely, uh, at in some sort of like inferno or burning or whatever. And you can go look at the tradition of all that. Uh, writing Second Timothy, he is very, very convinced about certain things and not other things. Uh, what I am pretty sure he's convinced of is that we don't get to know anything other than that what's in front of us and that the Lord is leading each step that we have in order to say his name and that he is risen and that he has paid for the universe and that we're all going to be made immortal now because of this one more time. One more time. And so your question, as much as like interesting to say, well, can we, can we pin the tail on this? Can we ask how far will we get? Like, that's just such a modern thing to do. It really is. Like, oh, can I, I love the imagination and don't, don't, don't hear this as a, as a critique. I'm critiquing myself here too in this. So please, please hear it that way. But like our need to foresee and understand ahead of time is maybe a particularly modern sin because it's only the magic of modernism that has convinced us we can do this, that we can look to tomorrow or next week and plan. In a previous age, in a previous eon, on this planet, the way the planet has just been for a long time and humans a long time, you could try, right? But, but it wasn't that easy to do. 
uh, Kronos, the clock didn't really give it to you the same way it has. And, and part of that article, by the way, from yesterday is how time and Kronos isn't really running everything for any, everybody anymore. We're not all on the same clock, and this has to do with the, the pandemic and when it moves, so nations are hitting the clock at different times. Very interesting stuff. But again, to push it back into your speculation about like, at what point have we like really understood the most that man can really understand, and then God ends it all? Like It's like, like I get it. You want to see the poetry of the whole thing, right? But the poetry that we're supposed to see as Christians is not the big picture. It's the guy in charge of the big picture who sees the big picture. He's the one with the plan, right? We don't need the plan. We only need what he gives us. And what he gives us is what's directly in front of us. What is really more important for your day-to-day warfare is not the understanding of mankind's sort of future ethereal potentials. As interesting as that is, don't get me wrong. I'm a nerd too, man. I like it, right? But but what matters is not nearly as much that as today I woke up and I'm going to run into these six bodies that are humans with names. And as a Christian, I am not only duty-bound to live a certain way as I speak with them and to treat my own self a certain way so that I might be better at speaking with them. Not merely duty-bound, I am promised I am promised according to the the baptism of Jesus Christ, the resurrection which he has attained on behalf of all of us. I am promised that that better way of living is going to be what happens in my life with ever increasing returns until the day when that's all that I know. Not by my own reason or strength, but because of the declarations and promises which God has given. So the fact is, if you really want to take like, 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 (laughs) here's the jiu-jitsu move, right? Man has already attained the most that man can ever attain when a single man attained it on the cross. The human endeavor reached its greatest potential when it did nothing but die under the vengeful wrath of the God who made him. And whatever else we might put there, you know, going to Mars, (laughs) like next to that, ah, it's not on the same scale, you know? It really ain't. So, yeah, sure. God's going to let us do all sorts of weird stuff. I I read, this is, take this with the, the biggest, the grain of salt in this is like as big as my head, okay? So, so, so last last week I do a lot of reading in Daniel because of St. Michael and All Angels, which I preached on last week. You can find that, that sermon uh, behind in the channel, wherever. And uh, uh, so, no, I couldn't help myself when you get to the end of Daniel and, it, you know, and, and the author of the commentary is like, well, there's no way to put these numbers together and give a real time and like, most of Christianity has known this, and then there's, like, American Christianity that hasn't known this since, like, 150 years ago, um, and is always trying to do this, we add up all the numbers and figure out, you know, how we can know not only when it started, but more importantly, when it's going to end, right? So, and you got all sorts of American religions and groups and cults and denominations uh, that come out of an individual who's like, well, I did the math, and it's going to happen. So, anyway, so I, I'm like, I, I firmly believe for a long time there's no math in this that you can do in that way, and yet I couldn't help myself. I got Daniel. I did the math anyway. So, and I figured it out. So here's, <laughs> I know when the world's going to end. I really do. I, I did it. I can show you. It makes sense. All the numbers add up. It's in 10,258 AD. So the good news about this is that you can't ever prove me wrong. And I'll tell you, it's nonsense. And yet the other good news about this is it's the way you should kind of act, right? Like you don't know. And so it might be. You have no way of knowing, oh, no, this is really the worst it's ever been. Because everybody who lived before you says the same thing. Have you ever read any of them? They all say the same thing. This is the worst it's ever been. The end must be upon us now. So 
forgive me, you know, Gen X cynic as I am, for like saying, I'm going to learn one thing from history no one else wants to learn. I'm learned that it's probably not now, and frankly, that would be the most likely reason for it to be now. But as soon as I would say that, then it's not now. See what I did there? It's kind of like a sophistry. Yeah. So <laughs> you can't win this game. You can't win the game. What you want is instead of speculating the potentials of human endeavor, unless you're going to write a science fiction book about it, and that's what you're doing right now. That's different, I suppose. But instead of that, uh, speculate on today's human endeavor with what's in front of you. Let time on a clock managed by your sun and your moon and your people mean more to you than a clock managed by Greenwich and the British Empire. You know, not that... You know, the tick, tick, tick isn't of value. It, it is. But what a, part of what you're feeling right now is the world going, whoa, it didn't work. It didn't make us all line up right. And look, we can't even anymore. And oh, by the way, these nations over here, well, we're going to do it differently than over there. And like, just like that, we fragment, right? And thank God, honestly, for this reality that the globalization project of communism, which is behind a lot of this, one way or the other, whether it's on purpose or not, the, the, the zeitgeist demonic project of destroying man as an idea and making man into but one more cog in his great dying machine, um, that's always going on here. And so, so don't miss the fact that the, uh, the globalization plan, if you're a Christian, you believe the Bible, you can never believe that globalization on its face will be good for us. It, it, it just won't be. Uh, at the moment that there's globalization, Christians are going to be dying in droves, right? If there's actually a king that rules the world, that's just what we know. We know that. Now, maybe there's a Christian king who's the first king that globalizes the world, right? But then we also know what happens two generations later. <laughs> so it's just, it's, none of this should surprise us. And in this regard, your wisdom that you're seeking here is very spot on. And I'm asking you now, now you've seen the big picture, put it to work in the trees, put it to work right where you are, right? Start applying your human endeavor to be a little more like Jesus and his greatness, which is what? Well, ultimately to be still and know that God is God. And to not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but to knowing he's in the form of a, a slave, a, a man, a human made to serve the garden, um, made himself nothing, right? Uh, uh, subjecting himself to death, even, even death on a cross. Good stuff. Good question. Thank you very much, Daniel. Going on to Cindy. A little longer. We're going to blow this one up sidewise. And take a sip of this marvelous Costco, Costco, Kirkland brand cold brew coffee. It is, um, it is a sad thing how ease overcomes flavor because while it's very good, it's very good, it is not as good as a freshly brewed hot cup. It is not. A pox on life and my laziness. Any case, here we go. <laughs> Cindy, uh, I shouldn't say that. A pox, Lord have mercy. I'm going to catch myself right in this right now. See that what I did? This is amazing. This is Romans 3 at work in our lives. It's all over. We can't help it. We curse. We curse. I said a pox. Why didn't I say a blessing? Why didn't I say, Lord, have mercy on me and help me remember to be less lazy? Why didn't I do that? Think about it. Next time you find your mouth doing that. It's amazing how quickly our tongues deceive. Uh, Cindy says this. I enjoyed the segment regarding Jesus never talked about homosexuality. This is last week's show. You can go find it last week, uh, whatever the date was, 28th. Um, I can't remember the title. So, uh, yeah. And the question was, largely dealing with the idea that Jesus never talked about homosexuality, and my answer is, but he talked about marriage and was very clear about what that meant, and so we should at least understand that much, right? So, uh, but this now, you're going to respond about, 
Yeah, it's really interesting. My my language and or my posture, right? And and it's good. It's good. Uh, you get a very passionate about how words are used, and yet you feel the need to apologize for seeming like you are nitpicking. Yeah, um, <laughs> because I burp in the mic. Uh, being a public figure, who also sadly, not sadly, rightly cares that you would get the right image of who I actually am and what I actually think. Rather than the caricature and straw man that anybody who looks like me has been painted to be because of my race and my sex uh, in the, and my religion uh, in the last, what, 15, 40 years? It's, it's been slow creep, but it's, it's really been there. Um, so, yeah, apologetic, I think, would be a pretty defining emotion or perspective or posture again for a lot of, for lack of a better term, white American males – who are under 50. Uh, we didn't get uh, maybe the toxic masculinity of what was before. We got instead the, the toxic demasculinity of, of the present age. And it's led to what, what you see happening on the streets with boys who are girls and girls who are boys and all this kind of stuff. Well, it was, it was going on a while back before, right? And I think, I'm, I'm saying this in response to your question, I think that the average man who is somewhere between like under 50 and, and over 22, and I can't speak for the kids right now at all, um, uh, but it, you know, down to that like bottom of the millennial curve, wherever that is, there is a grand struggle to simply say, "Yup, this is the way that it is." Shoot me, I'm not changing. We're, we've been trained with like a whip to be like, oh, "I'm sorry, did I offend you?" I'll say it differently, right? Like, like that, we've been whipped into this over decades of public schooling, private school. I miss mean, everywhere. Uh, TV, TV. Uh, so, so thank you. I'm working on this one. <laughs> And I think a lot of us are. And you pulling it out of me in front of people, I think it's going to help a lot of people maybe without you seeing it or feeling it yourself. So thank you for that. Um, and yes, I am passionate how, about how words are used. I am an English major. How's that? I am the very image of a modern individual. Something like that. I, I don't even know. Um, that's not even an English major thing, right? Pirates of Penzance, I think. And I, le- I learned that from The Simpsons, which again shows you how much I love words. Strangely, if you know what I'm talking about. That said... Um, I do think we got to be careful in what you're going to point out here, Second Timothy. Paul has some pretty strong words about nitpicking, right? So this is, here's your question from Cindy again. Uh, what did Paul mean when he warned Timothy to avoid quarreling about words? The Orwellian assault on our language is, in my opinion, one of the biggest dangers to our culture. Agreed. Uh, why do you mean by that? Uh, she means that, as Orwell in the book uh, 1984 showed, that the way that the abolition of man, the destruction of man, the suppressing of man, the tyranny of the, the minority over the many would proceed in the future would be less with swords and more with words. And those words would simply be uh, used as weapons by sucking the meaning out of them while the crowd continues to believe the original meaning is in them. And then standing in front of the crowd with the new meaning and getting the crowd to, sh- to cheer on the new meaning as you do it in the fervor and belief of the old meaning. Uh, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and all that kind of stuff. So, and if you look at uh, Saul Alinsky's rule for radicals, just to go immediately to the, to the ground, ground floor of the, of the battle, um, that's exactly what they did. Uh, years ago, decades ago, uh, the, the left wing, radical side of the left wing, took that approach. And if you're left wing, you're like, but that's not us. It's like, well, your party is now, and it's because they took that approach. They, they lied to us? Well, they lied to you too, right? So, and you can go ahead and say, well, no one's lying to anybody. Okay. I don't know what planet you're on. Um, but <laughs> so, so it does matter a great deal, 
right? Uh, which words are true? Can you trust people when they speak? Um, and when Paul then is going to uh, write to Timothy about words, we want to understand that this, in our context, he can't possibly be saying words don't have meaning, which is what the Orwellian motion is. It's the gaslighting effect too, right? That there is no meaning. You're the crazy one. Just do what you're told and everything will be less painful then, right? That move tries to destroy the meaning of words. And so if you, you, we can't look at Paul as saying from an Orwellian tyrannical devil perspective, well, words have no meaning, Timothy. So whatever you do as you preach Christ, make sure that you, you don't argue about a word that has a meaning in it because they don't have meaning. Like, like, that's not what he's saying, right? But he's saying something. And he's saying something that's really, really important and valuable. And I love your question doubly so because this text happens to be connected to uh, what is in the sermon this weekend, sermon prayer this weekend. So I spent a lot of time in Second Timothy this weekend or this week. Really fell in love with that book in ways I didn't know I I could before because it is so different from the other so-called pastoral epistles. Now, depending on your tradition where you come from, uh, a pastoral epistle may or may not mean anything to you. But most Protestant traditions, most, and, and I think all Catholic traditions, still call or often will call three books by Paul the pastoral epistles, even though this is only something from about the 1700s as an idea. So Paul and his corpus, the body of his work, that's something that's been around, you know, much, much longer than this, 300s at the latest. But really, if you look at the, the actual resources, you're the first century, these things are being collected and, and categorized. Um, but then uh, as we study them over time, being in the order that they're in, various people notice various things about them. And one thing that is the same about First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus is that they are written to guys who held the office of the holy ministry, as we Lutherans would say today. Guys who were preachers, uh, guys who were pastors, guys who were, well, were all priests in the kingdom, but they sometimes would pray on behalf of the people, which is a priest-like event. Um, so what do you call these guys? Deacons, overseers, elders. The Bible has a lot of terms for this kind of thing. But Paul clearly is writing 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus to guys who are in this kind of thing. They do this preaching thing. And by the way, Protestantism, why are we divided? Largely because we disagree about what this thing is. It, I mean, it's the sacrament, but the sacrament and this thing are tied to each other. This preaching office, predict omps, is really the, the old Lutheran way of saying it, the, the heralding job. Um, the, it's not prophetic in that you can't tell the future in ways that haven't already been told, but you can tell the future in ways that have already been told and you know for sure are going to come to pass. That's really your job. What is this thing? Um, <laughs> so... Paul is writing 2 Timothy to one of these guys. However, here's the problem then. You would think, okay, well, three letters to pastors, they must all be about being pastors. No, they're really not. Uh, in fact, 1 Timothy is only kind of about some guys who should be pastors, but it's mostly about how everybody should be together in the church. 2 Timothy is really about, like, <laughs> it's such an awesome letter. Paul's like, Timothy, I'm about to get killed. Don't forget this. And he tells him some Bible stuff. And the best parts, the very end where he's like, like, he's got instructions for like 17 people. And you can see, you can hear it. It's like, oh, well, I guess if I die, can you tell this guy this, tell this guy this, tell this guy this. It's pretty, pretty impressive ending to the letter. And then Titus is in a completely different spot, uh, what should be called a travel letter. It's from when he's out doing his planting, uh, and and he's not really at a base location like he is when he's in prison in Rome or when he's in Ephesians, uh, Ephesus for a while. In any case, so 
Second Timothy has in it this statement that you're referencing here, right? With Paul, what did he mean when he, he warns Timothy to avoid quibbling over the, the meanings of words because it destroys the hearing of those who listen to it, right? Um, now you go on, I'm going to finish your question, we'll come back and try to talk about that text. Uh, we are at war because we get into fights because we use the same words to mean two different things, right? Uh, exactly right. Uh, and each thinks the other is crazy. Uh, since the word is our food, aren't fights over words important? Yes. Please, please understand. Oh, I don't have my Bible right here. There it is. That the text there that's speaking about fights over words is not talking about fighting over over words. Uh, it's talking about quibbling over words. And there really is a difference between these two things. It's about the spirit with which you are going about the task. And what Paul is warning Timothy about is not to waste time with any Christian, frankly, uh, let alone uh, someone who would want to be a pastor who is going to sit there and debate semantics over um, things that you as the authorized kind of prophet, effectively, uh, are, are given to say to him, right? So, uh, bu- 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 bu. the problem I did before I didn't, I didn't come over here is I, here it is. Yeah, didn't have a camera. This is all new to me. Oh, God, should be right here. Can we see? Probably not. Let's see what we can do with this here. First timer, friends. Let's see. Camera controls. Not that one. This one. Let's go here. Does it work? Is it too blurry? Too blurry. All right, that won't work. So we're going to come back out of that. We'll try it. Can I get here? Oh, there's the camera. There we go. This might work. Thank you for bearing with me, everybody. We'll get this better eventually. So we're looking up here where he tells Timothy to be about words. Uh, oh, well, I guess we've got to start down here. Remind them. Who's them? Got to go back up here for them. Uh, them is the things that you have learned, heard from me, and trusted these faithful men who will be able to teach. Now, the question a little bit is, I mean, is this just pastors or is this everybody? I'm going to go ahead and say yes. I mean, if you're a man, you need to teach your children. <laughs> so, so you don't get off the hook. Right. Uh, but at the same time, do we need men in the church who are ra- raised up as preachers? Yeah, of course. Right. So it's not like you just jump in and do that right away. So you're supposed to teach everybody. Now he says, remind them of that, right? The stuff to learn. Well, is it, is it this poem? I don't think so. I actually think it's this confession of faith here, but we'll come back to that maybe the, uh, another time. Uh, remind them, though, of these things. What? The things that came before. Words that have meanings, that are clear and real, that Jesus Christ, I mean, this is the, the root. Sorry if I'm moving too much. Jesus Christ, the seed of David, raised from the dead. My gospel, he defines it. That he holds on to the point of change. And it's not change. So he endures it all for that, right? Remind everybody of that. Not to... There it is. Strive about words. To no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Shun pervading an idle babble, for that will increase to ungodliness. So the point, the point is not that there are no words. And the point is not to never have a discussion about words. (laughs) The point is not to let people who deny words, deny your words. Don't trust them. Don't let them steal them. Don't spend your time trying to convince them. So in reading about 2 Timothy this week, I read a marvelous book. Not all of it. It's just a section. 
It's called uh, New Testament something something. It, Carson Moo and Morris. Just just Google or Amazon search for Carson Moo and Mor- Morris Introduction to the New Testament. It's a marvelous resource, giving you the history and background and from Christians, by the way, of of where these books in the Bible come from. And, and how each one fits into its place in the canon, how it got there, when it was written, all that kind of stuff. It's a really great resource. And yet, I was just stunned how section after section, things on like why the book was written, and who the author was, and the lifespan and travels of the author, every single section in it was defending against accusations so it was never, here's what we know. It was always, so it said this, but that part's probably not true because this. And what I want to call to mind here is the defensive posture of the entire document. When the document should be on offense. All the information that's presented in Carson Mua Morris is reliable information. Why is it presented as if it has to be defended against? Why? Because you're defending, you're trying to convince people in positions that officially have Christian money and power and say they are Christian positions to be Christians. What are you doing then? You're quibbling over words with unbelievers for the sake of money. That's what you're doing. (laughs) You're trying to hold on to power structures built by men for the sake of the power. That's what you're doing. And that's what the text is saying not to do. Don't waste your time trying to convince somebody who you know doesn't believe, who you know has rejected what it clearly says, who has dismissed the scriptures in his own, her own arrogance and run off after their own gods and maybe not realizing they still, you know, they've left Jesus behind. Maybe Jesus is one of their many gods. It doesn't matter. Paul's point is, like, the time is short. You don't got you don't got time to waste arguing with somebody who just obviously doesn't want to believe. Like, okay, dude, we'll be friends, but you don't want to believe this. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to talk to somebody who wants to believe this because that person needs this and I need them. Honestly, that's what Christians do at church is talk to each other about the word of God and what it means. And the pastor's voice is supposed to be leading that conversation, right? He's like, talk about this this week because it matters. And you're supposed to be like, yeah, talk about this this week because it matters, man. Yeah, it totally matters, man. It matters. And you go out and you're like, dude, it mattered. It totally mattered. And you do something. Oh, look, it mattered. It worked. It's, it's true, right? That's Christianity. Uh, the growth together into a common, uh-oh, that's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> I just had the world blow up. There we go. Thank goodness. Oh, my screen went black. I heard sounds. I know it was like mid-sentence too. I was waiting for it all to go away. We're back on your question. So, right, since the word is our food, aren't fights over words important? Yes, they are. But which fight? Which fight? Is it the good fight that Paul will continue to talk about in 2 Timothy? When he says, right as he's going to die, I have been and am fighting the good fight. I know it says past in your, in your Bible, but it's a perfect, oh my goodness, perfect, so awesome. It means it's a past thing that is not going to go away and is still present. All three of those. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. No, 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 no. I am engaged in the good battle. I am running the real race. I am keeping the faith. Jesus is risen and I'm going to die. Hallelujah. Right? I mean, that, that's the letter. Wow. And, and it's just, it's so potent. So are those words worth fighting over? Yes, they're worth fighting with. They're worth fighting on. How can you fight with a sword when you're fighting about whether or not it's a sword? That's his point. Don't argue with the person who says, that's not your sword. Don't use that. That's not what it really says. We know it was written by monks in the Middle Ages who were on mushrooms. Like, like just, okay, dude. Like, rock on. Like, you, you live that religion, I'm going to live this religion, right? And that's, that's Paul's point. 
And and really saying that to Timothy end at the end there is so important to recognize that right right at the start of this whole thing, thirty years in, there's false teachers. There's like two mentioned by name in that letter. And then there's more that are mentioned who just abandon him because they're in love with the world, right? Two guys who run off chasing mythologies, which the more and more I listen to people go geek deep on things I love, things I love, Marvel timelines and uh, Lord of the Rings and uh, what else am I, do I, do I think great? Uh, Magic the Gathering. The more I listen to geek deepers geek deep on this mythology, the more I wonder about devoting ourselves to myths and speculations, it's not that you can't enjoy the story of Hercules, but when you don't spend as much time quoting the story of Jesus as you quote the story of Hercules, well, who is your God after all, right? So so uh, instead of fighting about whether or not we should keep the words, which is what the last like hundred years the church has spent all its money on mostly, uh, how about we just use them? Right, and assume they're true. And if somebody, if somebody's like, I don't believe that, be like, cool. There is a you'll see a church right down the street. <laughs> you know, there is a Muslim church right across the street from them. Teaches much the same stuff, right? So, uh, you know, hey, and they don't call it church. I know. Um, so, yeah, good question, Cindy. You're on. You're on to it right there. You're completely on to it. Moving on to Night Flight eighty three. Love that name. That's a good movie. That's that's like a Wesley Snipes movie, right? There, he's been on a couple of plane movies, by the way. Um. I did have this thought, random thought, tangent the other day. I think every Gen Xer around my age probably thinks this, but it is. We're in this random like point in history where we lived at a time when you really could watch every movie that was being made. Like I'm like I'm like the last of that, right? It's almost it's gone. Most of you know no such thing, right? But like for us, then we have this uh, shared category of communication in these movie quotes that increasingly you who are younger will have less of. Marvel did a good job of binding us together a little bit, but not, not forever and it won't last. Uh, so it's interesting to see how the, the globalization of entertainment is fracturing our, our conversations. But meanwhile, my point was, us Gen Xers, we, just, uh, we have such a, a, a microcosmic experience of the same, right? Um, although I wonder, what was that place called? There was a burger place none of you, unless you lived in Northeast Portland, have ever been to. But then there's that too. We all have like that, right? Anyway, anyway. Let's move on to real stuff. Knife Flight, who is not Wesley Snipes, says this. What do you mean when you say every human being is saved in Jesus? Great. Uh, if Is the default position of every person's salvation and those who are lost are simply those who insisted on being lost? Kinda. I mean, I, I'd never say it that way because the default position... It depends on what you mean by the default position. Let's come back to that. Uh, you're really intrigued. Good. I'm glad you're really intrigued. What you're intrigued by is something called the universal atonement, which in a good section of Protestantism, but small, uh, is is decried. And this, this section is the tulip uh, superlapsarian reformed Calvinist tradition. And uh, so they don't, they don't believe what I'm going to say. Um, they believe that Jesus did not die for everybody, but only for some. Now, I, I think that's kind of not what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is Jesus died for everybody. So since Jesus died for everybody, it is possible to use the language of salvation to refer to everybody, even though not everybody will be saved through the faith that they are promised by God is there and will save them as a fully atoned for reality God has done in Jesus. See what I'm saying? So, so like the promise is that, yeah, nobody's on the outside of this saying, Unless you want to be on the outside of this thing and you're doing that like in the face of being told you can be on the inside of this thing. I'll put you on the inside of this thing. You were originally on the inside of this thing. You've chosen to be outside this thing. It kind of 
kind of sucks outside this thing, and I, I'm going to put you back in this thing. And and anybody who's like, no, I'd rather die. He's he's kind of like, well, you're just gonna like ruin it for everybody else. So I guess I'll let you go. You know, I mean, I don't want to put words in God's mouth and be a snark, but it's kind of what it is. Uh, that evil cannot be allowed to survive because it will ruin everything. I know it sounds like like this like that's so obvious. Yeah, it, it sounds obvious, but nobody really acts like that in their thinking, which means we should ponder that a bit more. Like, why are we trying to save the evil? What are you, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? Are you trying to save an evil life? How much of your life are you spending trying to save your evil life? Are you not intrigued by that? So, the default position of every human being was born created perfect. Unfortunately, the default position since. The one man who was around at that time and from whom we all genetically come is that we are not uh, perfect, (laughs) Uh, that our our default position is in fact unclean, filthy, disgusting, uh, worthy of nothing but burning. It, 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 It gets in the way of everything that it touches and makes it worse. However, because the one who made us doesn't like that idea. And doesn't want that to happen because he likes what he makes. And even when what he makes decides to be evil, he's like, you know, I'm going to stop that. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, he has, in fact, done that in Christ. Now, Christ then being a man genetically from Adam and yet genetically not from Adam via a man's seed (laughs) uh, without having then that that corruption that is ours willingly took the penalty for the corruption that is ours. He's the only one to not deserve the penalty, and he's the only one to take it undeservedly, and he willingly did so knowing that by virtue of his being quite a bit more than just a man from the beginning, (laughs) uh, that when he came back out of the grave as a man, it would yet again put a new default position onto mankind. Mankind's default position is now Jesus. Everything else is like smoke and fumes that's burning away. So yeah, everybody is saved in Jesus. If you don't want to be in Jesus, you are choosing to remain in the smoke and fumes that are burning away. It's about faith. That's why it can't be about like math equations or church bodies or uh, elected hierarchies or, or any such thing. It really is that when the words are said, he is risen, do you think yes or no? And if you think yes, you can know. It's not on, on your shoulders that you do that, that the Spirit of God did that to you. If you say no, you can know <laughs> you're kind of being obstinate <laughs> against the facts. And from there, you know, he is risen. What's it mean? You're paid for. Who? Me? What about those other people who don't believe? You are paid for. How do you know you actually are going to get it? Because you believe it when he says it. And those who don't believe it when he says it, don't believe it. That's the problem. That's the problem from the start. What happened with the fall was a loss of faith and belief. What is salvation? Being put back into faith and belief. So those who don't want to believe are not wanting to be saved. Salvation and faith are the same thing. It's like faith gets you saved. Humans, and particularly the last, what, salesman pitch version of Protestantism for the last 40 years, is like, got the idea that heaven, when you die, is like the reason you're a Christian. Like, like, uh, you know, I got a bad job right now, but if you become a Christian in 15 years, you'll retire with a great benefits package. So just be a Christian and work your way there. Make sure you do your weekly obligations. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, you know, that pitch of I'm going to get to heaven and that's salvation 
turned into this, the, the, the toaster oven thing of the last 40 years of rock-style churches, it really has just sucked the life, the absolute life of what, of what it really means to confront faith, to confront a Bible that doesn't say what the narrative around you is saying, and to believe it against even your own heart. That's salvation. And it's worth having now, not in the future. I am, I am saved not because I'm going to go to heaven or because on the last day I will have a body that feels like it will never die. The real power, you want to go back to that foolishness of God that's wiser than men's strength, is the fact that right now, simply knowing who God is actually in Jesus makes being here worth it with the suffering. And you might even say the suffering becomes the point. Because the suffering points you to Jesus, which makes Jesus come out of your mouth, so that those who are suffering and don't yet believe here. Because the, the verbs are for everybody. Yeah, that's your question. What do you mean when I say every human is be, being saved in Jesus? Jesus? I mean the verbs are for everybody. The proclamation is for everybody. The, the gospel, the good news, the declaration, the saving, the doing, Jesus being God and King and Lord is for everybody. You're in. Oh, no, I'm not. Well, okay, then th- that's you, man. <laughs> right, and that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Now, if we're going to blame uh, damnation on someone, we should blame it on the damn sinner. And uh, the rest of us should just keep declaring that salvation in God, in Christ, through grace has come, knowing that those who are believers will believe it. We don't have to cajole. We don't. Should you pray for those who you love who aren't believers because you're sad that they're not believers? Yeah. Are you going to be sad that you're not believers? Yeah. Should you cajole? No. <laughs> should you change your message? No. You join them, you become like them. We know that from the Old Testament pretty, pretty clearly. So, uh, and oh wait, oh, we know that from the last 40 years of megachurches too, don't we? Uh, If you're watching, uh, our deacons, Melinda asks, elders, pastors, the same. Mm. Yes, probably. Nobody knows anything about this, really. We all say stuff and most of us just don't know. I I have had deacons and pastors at a church, yeah. The, the, The phrases get used all over the place in American traditions for various things. So you can't really pin these down as technical terms on a show for the nation. Sorry, they, they, I, you know, in, the, in the LCMS, we even have maybe three to f- three different ways we use the term elder and or deacon at different times. And even pastor can mean different things now, too. So it's, you know, what are these things? Uh, what they are right off the bat is they are different terms we find in the Bible, right? So you find the word deacon, elder, and more the word bishop than pastor, honestly. The word pastor in the New Testament is pretty rare. How we ended up calling everybody pastors I'm not sure. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it does mean shepherd, uh, which might remind us, I think we'd do better if we called everybody hireling, because <laughs> uh, that's more what that image is about. But, but in deacon, elder, and then episcopace or bishop, these are words that show up in more than one New Testament epistle and seem to be connected to men of leadership positions uh, at times, or more often not at times, Generally, not just random leadership positions, but those which have preaching duties associated with them. That is a public orator of Christianity, a public witness, a public confessor. Somebody who the church has said, this man speaks for us, right? Joe Biden is the Democratic Party, sometimes, uh, when he's saying two things at once. Anyway, uh, the point being, actually, Christianity, that's how it is, right? The office of the ministry, as Lutherans would talk about it, is the idea that there is an authority within the church that should be bestowed upon men so that they are confident they speak for the church and, and don't look over their shoulders in fear. But no, oh, I've been sent to say this stuff. This is what it says. Everyone else says it too. 
right? That idea we see emerging in Paul telling Titus and Timothy in those pastoral epistles, among other places, you know, where you are set up men to do these things. And he calls them deacons, elders, overseers. Um, the early Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, Connected to some, I shouldn't say too early though. How early this shows up is not as early as anyone would like it to be. Um, the real organizational factors of this, when the church becomes officially kind of legalized in the Roman systems, you see these positions really become official. The Roman Catholic Church today distinguishes them as dogmatic uh, differences. Uh, you have other church bodies that will also try to do the same thing with different words. Sometimes they'll have one of the words really means a lot. Sometimes another doesn't, and or they'll, they'll split the meanings. They'll try to find different meanings so there's orders within uh, the order and all this. Um, I'm a, I'm a Sassite in this one. Uh, and frankly, a Carson Mua Morris, uh, one on this one too, because they talked about it in that second Timothy's passage. Um, uh, we don't have enough information in the New Testament to know what the organizational structure was. Other than that, they got together, there was bread and wine, there was water for the new people, and there were guys who were allowed to talk and guys who didn't talk until they had learned from the guys who were allowed to talk. And we're talking about talking publicly to the group from the scriptures about what it says. And, you know, to understand ordination, um, to understand that there is a ascending and a deeper reality at play in the spirituality of the individual who is being uh, authorized in this way is something that I think the Lutheran tradition has a lot to share with uh, the rest of the Protestant world. Um, and at the same time, we've also managed to, while confessing the office of the ministry, strip the men in it of having any real conviction that it's their power to use, uh, which is really something uh, to, to pull off as a, as a social experiment of the last 50 years. And it probably has to do with us being Germans at the time when Germans were hated more than anybody else in this country, which is World War One and, and Two. So, uh, which is why we have flags in our sanctuaries, blah, 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 blah. Not because we're Zionists, which is, ah, tangent, uh, <laughs> So your question continues, but I think I've already kind of answered it. Are, are deacons trained while others are laymen? We, we really don't know. Uh, could you, If you're asking for the biblical answer, right? At your church, your church constitution might say the answer to your question, but that doesn't mean it's what the Bible says. And the danger I find in this whole discussion is using Bible terms to mean man-made ideas. You tend to associate the man-made idea as the real thing, and then over time you have no Bible ideas. You just have Bible terms with man-made ideas. That's that Orwellian thing we were talking about before. So I'd say be really careful with these terms in your church. We have a board of elders at my church. I, I do refer to them as the elders. They are not pastors. They are not preachers. They are men of good repute who support me. Um, and I can trust them to support me. And that's what that group does. Uh, that's kind of the LCMS Lutheran view of elders usually. Um, but again, that doesn't have like a biblical mandate per se, nor does the use of the word elder really help. They are not the oldest people in the church, you know, and all that. So, um, you know, with the synod you ask here, you know, with a capital, yeah, I think we capitalize it as, as a company. Um, district and church all use the same definitions. If you're talking LCMS, yeah, officially we should be, although you can go back and find a document from the 80s, 83, 87, called pastoral ministry nomenclature and practice or something they made us read it. it was like the first thing we had to read at the seminary and my i can still remember my initial re reactions like why are we arguing so much about the word ministry this seems really odd that we're having such a fight over what that word means and looking back at it now it's like well the your question is the things so you have a bunch of people using all these terms in a bunch of different ways and everyone's trying to stay together even though we're quibbling over the terms right why are we trying to stay together 
money. Health, health insurance, buildings, colleges, university systems, there's lots going on, right, in, in any church body. Um, so you, you put up with people who don't believe what you believe because you think this other stuff is necessary. I don't blame anybody for this. I understand it. I feel it. Uh, but the point again is that we are using different definitions, even though officially we're not. So that document kind of came out and said, well, officially is what we're supposed to say. But of course, you know, you could say it other ways. And then and that's usually what our documents do say. Uh, and, and that leads to just everyone doing what they see fit. So, um, you know, the time of the judges is upon us in more ways than one. Uh, but with this terminology, absolutely, you know, I, so I wouldn't put a lot of stock in any of these. Um, and I don't use them much unless they're already there or to teach what's clearly there. Right. And I said it earlier and I went really fast, but if, if you got people who are deacons, elders, pastors, bishops, or otherwise, and they are not speaking from the scriptures, what the scriptures say, then they're not doing their job. If their job is the biblical definition of that term. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they need to be repeating the scriptures with conviction as those who have made them their own, as those who believe in the scriptures as their own holy book, as their own prayer book, as their own book of wisdom. Uh, uh, and uh, in that regard, though, so so let me say, yes, uh, I will say that biblically, I think because we cannot see many offices clearly defined, but we do see that Christ has a New Testament existence that's different than the Old Testament prophets, and even those gifts of prophecy and tongues and healing that were poured out on the early church to signify the end of Judaism as the way to salvation, the end of Old Testament codes, um, even though those were there, what remained, faith, hope, and love, these three remain, right? Um, Go into all nations, baptize, and teach. This is what remained, Um, and that whatever a man is sent to do in the name of the church, you call him whenever you want. If you put hands on the guy and say you're authorized to speak, you're effectively putting him in this category. You might as well call him a pastor. I don't know why you're not, unless you want to ordain women and that's your problem. Oh, did I just bring up that topic? Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, aside from that, he should be capable, if you're going to give him this name, he should be capable of answering basic questions about Jesus being risen from the dead. Uh, and and with conviction, know that's his job, and he shouldn't be afraid of answering those questions because they're not even that tough. Like, is Jesus risen from the dead? Like, I'll give you five minutes here. Think about it. And you, you know the answer, right? So, so being faithful and speaking faithfully is not as difficult as perhaps we all CMSers have made it think because we've been quibbling about terms with the enemy for so long, and so we're busy trying to make everybody understand every possible quibble. How about we give you the sword? Let's get the sword and get this thing going. I'm going to take a little break. We've been going here for about an hour, and I just need to uh, breathe for three minutes. I don't have new music for any of you yet, but I know you've asked about where this music is from and whether or not you like it and all these kinds of things. So please enjoy the music as I take a break. So for, for those of you in the peanut gallery uh, s- saying that Red Fist needs to label his buttons, um, I'll have you know I pushed the right button, but the file folder has been moved because I'm moving between computers, and so... In copying to another place, somehow I moved this file and it went to the blah, 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 blah. So I'll have you know I'm trying. And then we'll get there eventually. That computer, if you remember that computer that like three days before Christmas last year went down on me, I finally got it back like last week. And I'm slowly, slowly going to rebuild that thing as the most like, um, what, what's the right word? Um, uh, minimalist approach to computing possible that I can, that I can find. But what I want to show you, if I can... 
Well, does it even show up here? There we go. It's just a little bit of the Mad Christian Discord here. You can see last night I left uh, all this information from that article I mentioned earlier. You see Baron Albatross and Knight Anakin Cringewalker, both of whom are regulars uh, watching the show live here with their own commentary on it. It's like Facebook, only it's dark web intellect and it's Lutheran and Christian and Catholic and good for you. So get in on it. You get in on it right away uh, as fast as you can. If you're in the chat right now today, in fact, there is a... Uh, link right there for you to see and join it. Conan the Destroyer sends me a super chat. Thank you so much for your 10 bucks, Conan. He says, I started reading Ecclesiastes after reading Proverbs. I love Ecclesiastes so much. It struck me that Ecclesiastes is a coda to Proverbs. I like that idea. Essentially saying the Proverbs will lead you to a good life, but even that is vanity. Yes, um, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to hat this to Pastor Andrew Preuss, who's the one who changed my thinking on this and gave me the, the alt- narrative to Solomon's life, right? So so here's the normal narrative to Solomon's life. The normal narrative is that like he's super faithful, God gives him wisdom, he writes proverbs that's awesome and then he decides to marry foreign wives, which we know, and then they turn his heart astray and then he writes Ecclesiastes and then he loses his faith and then he dies and really is kind of faithless and Song of Songs was probably from sometime, I don't know, we don't know, right? Now, that's the that's kind of the normal narrative. It's like, is Solomon saved? Well, we kind of hope so, maybe. Probably not. The other narrative is this one, though. I like this one a lot. Solomon asks for wisdom. And it's not like he's a bam, like, oh, Matrix style. <laughs> wisdom. No, no. He, he learned it. Like, he earned it. Uh, and so part of that was that, in fact, he was clever. He did read the law of God in Moses. And so when people brought cases and riddles and things to him, um, he was able I'm going to stop the Discord here from making those noises. Uh, he was able to like adjudicate the cases and earn the glory and all this kind of stuff. But then in the glory came the women, and the women came the life you hear about in Ecclesiastes. And the life you hear about in Ecclesiastes is him realizing he has about lost his faith. And I think what spawns this, to some extent, then is he's been writing and cataloging, he's trying to find wisdom on his own, basically. And and he, he finally sees his son, Rehoboam, at some point, wherein Rehoboam is, um, he's seen as a person who's not going to end up as a Christian by Solomon. And Solomon is losing his faith near the end of his life, right? Not very end though. Um, And what happens is, for the sake of Rehoboam, whom he loves, he repents and he writes Proverbs. And he writes Proverbs to try to help Rehoboam retain the kingdom. Now we know the story of Rehoboam. He does not. He's a fool. Um, And you can hear Solomon pleading with his son, my son, my son, listen to me. It's it's so there. Um, You also have stuff with my son forming the structure. You have, you know, why are certain things where and all that. But um, so to see Ecclesiastes as a code of the Proverbs, I think is right. It's the what kind of code is it? I'm going to say it came first. It came first. Ecclesiastes is Solomon writing after trying to find wisdom on his own and failing and giving us the story we see in the scriptures that lead us to Rehoboam. And then he writes Proverbs to try to spare Rehoboam, but it's actually for Jesus who reads it and gets it all right away. Is what, what was he for? Reading the Hebrew? And he's like, oh yes, oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because the human man, Jesus, developed his mind through the scriptures, right? It's his own book. And then it's there for you. Right. So you don't have to be Rehoboam. Uh, you can read the, the Proverbs yourself. And as, uh, as Conan's on it now, Conan, you read the Proverbs fast, perhaps here. I, I, I tweeted this out this morning or Instagrammed it. You, the Proverbs cannot be read fast. So if you go to them and you read them already, read them again. <laughs> and read more slowly. So also with this book, Talk Them Into It, my new book, we'll get to that probably in about half an hour here. Uh, I got my favorite comment so far on Amazon reviews is that it reads like a bunch of notes somebody slammed together in a weekend. And I'm kind of like, well, 
got me. <laughs> but it's not. It's a devotional book that well, this is version 1.0. And as I read through it with you right now in real time, we'll eventually release a version 2.0 that all the squeaks and, and comments and everything you go throw back at me, like, I didn't understand this. That's all going to get fixed. Hopefully by, you know, I don't know, Christmas? We'll see. Um, probably not Christmas. But by next year, the book's going to get better. So I love the review on Amazon that says, you know, it's not enough. I agree. But what we're doing here is an experiment in what's called publish then filter. Rather than live in the world before the internet, I'm taking Clay Shirky of, I think, New York University's understanding of the internet and the way it works, that you don't filter it before you publish it. As much as you can, you publish it, then filter it, and let the internet help you filter it. You'll get a better filter that way. Um, and so that's what we're doing, right? Normally, you would wait until the book's all done and never changes. You never look at it again. I did it the other way around. I gave you the first draft. So if you think this book is bad because it's a first draft, well, then, I don't know. I think it's a pretty good first draft, don't you? Well, we'll look at that again in about half an hour. We'll look at that again in about half an hour and get into some stuff there. I want to get to your questions and comments still from the history, and there's some super chats I'll pick up on the way here. So uh, jumping over to Brian, who's got a little bit of a longer one uh, because he's critiquing me and my errors, and he's right, and I want to make sure we get it out there. I just can't move my window around. Hold on. I'm going to make you guys have to watch this so I can do this. There we go. Come back. Come back. So Brian Yamabe, Brian is a great guy. You can find him anywhere. He's not ashamed to be who he is. He helps out with the show. He's been a a follower, a listener to my stuff for a long time. And one of the things I love about Brian is he's not afraid to be like, yeah, you know, Pastor Fisk, I think you're really wrong about that. And he gave me a couple of them. And they're all all great uh, because they they nuance what I was trying to say even better. And and his criticism of me that I'm Joe Rogan, (laughs) uh, that I'm I'm an inch deep and and a mile wide uh, is true enough, especially when I'm not in my specialty, right? Um, But uh, that's part of what we're about here is pulling those threads and then seeing if we can get the expert to show up and tell us what it really means because uh, we have them, right? So here, here's a couple expert fixes. Uh, best fixes critique is based on my own hang-up with precision. I don't think it's a hang-up, Brian. I think it's a gift uh, that is... Uh, it's not a real criticism, right? And, I, and because I'm a Christian, I can understand it. If someone does criticize me, that it's probably good for me anyway. And, and then on top of that, you're my friend. You know, you're, you're a fan. You're a helper. Uh, and so... Not too worried about it, but thank you again. Uh, so your wealth, meaning my wealth, this is that Gen X comment from earlier, the insane hub of, of a life scene, everything that was ever made before a certain date. Uh, your wealth of pop culture, psych, and technology is fun for injecting relevance, but leaves you open to a lot of cringeworthy moments. Is that the only thing that leaves me open to cringeworthy moments, Brian? Really? I mean, you've watched long enough. Is that the only thing <laughs> that makes cringeworthy moments on my show? <laughs> You're right, though. Uh, for people who are familiar with the references. That's right. So, because when I'm playing with information that is new to me, and I'm sharing it with you and I'm pondering it in, in real time, right? Wrestling with the ideas that I've found on the white noise. I can't possibly have the expertise that those who have found more of these ideas on the other side of the white noise have. And again, so thank you, because what happens here is that I share with you what I know as much as I know it. And I will change what I know when, when I know there's another way to know it, right? If you give me some other information that's out there. And the reason you trust this is because you know that what I'm basing it on is a scriptural narrative founded in Jesus' death and resurrection that you've been unable to poke a hole in so far. Hopefully, you keep, keep testing me on that one, right? Like, you, you haven't been able to say, well, he's actually using all this other stuff to get rid of the Bible. <laughs> like, what you find is I keep using all these references to pull you into the Bible, which is why it's worth it even when the reference is wrong, right? Or nuanced. So let's look at these nuances here, right? And it cringeworthy for the expert, but I think, I think beneficial actually for the learner here. Uh, here are, the th- uh, are three you recently said that I hope you can uh, correct in the future. Let's do it right now. So the 80-20 rule is called the Pareto principle, not the bell curve. So I compared the bell curve 
which is also connected to the long tail idea, which is the invert of the bell curve, right? But it goes, it still kind of does the same thing. I don't know enough math to really tie the math together, but they have similar features to them. That's what I did is I tied those similar features together to try to explain how, um, if you're looking at the 80-20 principle, that 20% of your work is achieving 80% of the workload, that means that your tails in the bell curve are the things that are doing most of what's happening in the middle. I'm postulating there's connections there, okay? And what you're saying is, but they're two different things. And yes, absolutely. So let's get that right then. The 80-20 rule is the Pareto principle. Uh, the Pareto principle is that you get 80% of the effect from 20% of the effort. Yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of use with this principle across disciplines where people observe, you can see this everywhere. And am I wrong that while the bell curve is not a hard 80-20, it's awful close to like an 80-20 split with some bleed, <laughs> you know, a good amount of round bleed. So that's that's maybe where my own, again, postulations are going. This one is by, by no means anything other than an armchair mathematician, right? An armchair philosophical mathematician for what that's worth. But, but so good, absolutely. And then the bell curve is the normal distribution of results. So when you observe, um, what you're saying is that the, new, the narrow part here is that when you observe a category of, of observations, you will always see outliers on both sides and a, a lumped up middle. Um, and if you don't, you really messed up the experiment usually, right? Something like that. So cool. What did I do now? Did I do it worse? I want to know. Because I think, I think what you helped me do is say yes and yes. I believe both those things and there's something more to be found there. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to know that. Um, Number two, gamification versus game theory, which again, yep, I merged them. I mashed them together because in my own head, they are two sides of a similar trajectory in philosophy. Huh? Um, and it, it, what do I know? I'm just some dude talking to the computer. So maybe I'm completely wrong. Um, but your distinction is completely right. And what I'm building on when I suggest they, they bind together in certain ways. Uh, so gamification is the application of psychological principles of feedback to get people to engage in activities such as slot machines, social media, Etc. Yeah, uh, let's let, slot machines biases us a bit here, right? It's the application of real time feedback, or as close as you can get with real time feedback to your actions, to turn it into what feels like a game with positive reward to the action in order to get the results you want. People play games because of the positive rewards built into the game, tricks and memory and whatnot. And gamification says, try to change behaviors like that. You want to change your kid's behavior, don't tell them what to do, turn it into a game. Now, if you don't play games, that's hard to do, right? Um, so, but gamification, right? But now game theory is the study of mathematical models to determine the optimal outcomes of decision making based on the knowledge of the participants. Right. So game theory, in my mind, the way I'm using it now, I am applying game theory to gamification of my life. So I'm trying to gamify my life and I'm trying to study the mathematical results of the outcomes. I'm trying to look at the outcomes, see their results and make a decision that makes that game more useful for more people. So I'm, I, I think I'm still right about this one, but you're right too. And I'm really thankful for the distinction because the distinction helps you see what I'm trying to do. Game theory suggests that I'm reading, I'm reading your sentence again one more time. Make sure I get it right. Yeah. Game theory, I'm going to read yours. Game theory is the study of mathematical models to determine the optimal outcomes of decision-making based on the knowledge of the participants. Right. So based upon knowing what the people want to be the result of the work, the game, whatever, right? Uh, they then track, test, and use models 
to project what the best path would be? Is that is that the distinction that I'm missing? And so um, in that regard, it doesn't apply to what I'm saying. That's interesting. How bored did everybody else just get in that? <laughs> right. Uh, but I think I think what I'm doing is just that. I'm understanding that I, you know gamification is believing biofeedback. Biofeedback can be hacked for fun. Hack your own biofeedback to build in fun and reward to what you want your life to look like and be. And then those rewards will compel you to do more of that thing. And, and game theory, I think, is my belief that you can apply a mathematical model to this very thing in a way that benefits more people than just one. Ah, maybe. Okay. And it's great, though. I love this comment because what you're, what you're, what you're playing with here is the fact that there, you listen to me on this show because when I talk about certain things, I know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you try to argue with me, I take you to the mat. <laughs> right? And, and you're like, oh, well, maybe he's wrong, but I can't fight that. Right? What you're seeing with this stuff here, I'm not that guy. I'm the guy who can do that with the Bible, but I'm not the guy who can do that with, with philosophical math. I'm actually in the middle of the ring trying to learn it, but I'm doing it in real time in front of you, right? Uh, and that is, it does, as Brian points out, it leaves me open to what? I'm susceptible to being wrong, right? And I think you got to be to do a show in which you talk about stuff you don't know about. And learn about it together. If you're going to do a show about learning, what is this show? It's a show about learning on Saturday morning. Saturday morning cartoons for a civilization that doesn't fall apart ten years later, right? Uh, it's so so learning and and growing can't happen when the teacher is never shown to be one who learns or grows. You're going to want to be just like this perfect talking head. So so I'm thankful for these, Brian, and I'm going to keep being cringeworthy because I think it's essential to the identity of the show being not about how great Fisk is. Fisk has good and Fisk has bad, like the rest of us, right? Um, but there are things that are ultimately and eternally good that around these good things, these, these, these words, these ideas, these truths, he has risen. Uh, well, there are bad falls away and we, we wind up rubbing each other's backs a lot more, right? Like, like scratching each other's backs. Uh, again, the rising tide lifting all the ships unto faith in his overcoming. So I'm, I'm, I think your... Your yin to my yang, no pun intended at all. Uh, really, in this, Brian, I love it. Thank you. Keep correcting me, and and I'm gonna keep being wrong so I can keep learning, because you're great at, at finding finding what I needed. Uh, so number three, Moore's law. This is I didn't know this at all, right? Moore's law is the idea that the chip density, not speed, would double every 18 to 24 months. So why does everybody that I ever hear talk about talk about uh, chip shrinkage and doubling of speed? Like I've heard that everywhere I've ever heard it said. So I, I'm glad to hear it's not that. It's just about Basically, how small the chips can be get can get right every eighteen to twenty four months, and then chip clock speeds haven't had a major increase in quite some time. I didn't know that. And then Moore's law is ended by most accounts two three years ago. I didn't know that either. So it's not really a law. Then is it? Moore's theory um, <laughs> or, or Moore's principle? Is it a law? For a law, it can't end. It would still have to apply somewhere somehow. Um, that's really interesting stuff. So thank you for that. I I will. I mean, Moore's law becomes less interesting. Other than to say now it's over. And so when you see – when people write long articles about how we just finished the millennium shift from Kronos time to Kairos time and how it means that none of us are going to be on the same clock like we all thought we were up to like four months ago, like that that existence is now gone and the new one is here and that this would only be you know two years behind Moore's law ending is not – ironic 
even a little bit, is it now? How interesting. Thank you, Brian. I know nothing of these things. Listen to A Brief History of Power if you want someone who knows about that stuff, because I ask questions, and the guy who really studies, he answers those questions on A Brief History of Power. Here I talk about the Bible. But thank you for correcting me when I talk about the Bible and or other things. Um, uh, ba We did this one already. D. We're going backwards. Let's go. F. Luke says this. Mad Mondays drove me mad when I read that you could care less. <laughs> really? My promotion of Trump as the greatest pro-life presidential candidate in history did not drive you mad. Uh, it drives lots of Christians mad who think he's uh, a white supremacist, racist, authoritarian. And the fact that I would tell you that you should vote for him anyway because he'll stop killing babies and the other guy who wants to not have authority, in theory, uh, will just keep killing babies. Like, I thought that would make more people mad than I've heard. I've heard nobody yell at me yet. I'm waiting for, like, someone to be mad about that. Um, really? I mean, with all the hate for the orange man, we didn't blow up the internet with that? Um, I didn't think we blew up the internet. But I, I thought that, like, somebody in the LCMS would think I should get an email or a phone call about it. Um, not, not LCMS Inc., just the broad, the broad, broad brush. But uh, what really got you was not Trump, pro-life, uh, what, BLM, Antifa, uh, me tweeting, oh, who knows what. It's that I, I wrote, you could care less, as opposed to I couldn't care less. Um, hmm. I always cringe when I hear people say this. Yeah, you're probably right. I wasn't expecting it from you. I'm sorry. So, so, I, so I have to give you a hard time. You're doing it. <laughs> uh, especially since we all know my love of language. Yeah, so let's go through it. I thought it might take uh, make some interesting banter on your next SMT. Check out what the dictionary has to say about the phrase, could care less. Thanks for all you do. Don't worry. I'm worried. I, I'll keep watching, even if it can't come to agreement on which is correct. You know, here's the thing. I have this this stick in my neck from, from college as an English major, wherein I had to teach my college professor sentence diagramming to prove to her that it worked to teach English. And maybe this doesn't matter to you. Maybe you hated sentence diagramming, but... but I know for a fact that I talk clean because of sentence diagramming and the book of Proverbs. Okay. I talk clean because of sentence diagramming when I was 12, like that did it. And I'm at college as an English in an English class and the prof on, on the history and structure of English language, the best class I took, the, the prof says nothing about sentence diagramming until she says how it's a complete waste and will never be taught again and shouldn't be used. And so what did I choose for my one paper for that class? Oh, you better believe it. <laughs> Oh man, uh, sentence diagramming. It, it is, and so I, as a result of that class, though, in which she also taught me that English as a language had ended, that grammar no longer held rules, and she rightly demonstrated quite quite profoundly that all of English's rules are basically Latin rules that have been foisted onto the language, and so to some extent are an attempt to make a dead language out of a living one. Um, I've been in in a little utter rebellion against anybody who says you can't say English this way in any way ever since. I think you can say English any way that the people who hear it, hear it. The problem is, Babel, no matter what you do, even if you say it right, they may not hear it. Yeah? So let me suggest that, well, I completely agree with you, and I, it's all taken in good humor. What really matters when we're talking about words and the meaning of words is what the person heard, whether you intended it or not. So when people, you know, catch this, you know, did they think I meant what you, what you can show grammatically, which is that I just said something that was the opposite of what I meant, that I 
Could care less means I do care a little bit. And I wanted to say I could not care less, meaning there is no more lessening of my care that I can give, right? That's what I meant to say. Um, and you're right to notice that, like, there is something to this, that, like, our English has devolved that much. And this is mass media white noise blob future, so get ready for it. If you're not categorizing your own English inside your house with, with resources such as the Bible, <laughs> as, uh, such as the catechism, you know, giving yourself a, a vocabulary, you're going to have vocabulary stripped away from you because it's just madness. It's a madness that's out there. What, what India is like with dialect is what's coming, right? Uh, and you're going to have dialect English, dialect other stuff, it's all over. It's not that you won't be able to order a hamburger, right? but when you want to talk about Jesus, it's going to be speaking into Babylon, um, so in that, then thank you for the, the, the critique, but I'm going to, I'm going to say, I think it matters more that we worry less, that we care less about old rules that no longer apply because the teachers are teaching. They don't apply. And you're never going to change that tide as a whole. And instead, if you're going to talk about this kind of language saying, talk about the ones that really matter in the heart of the home in the heart of the, the community, the church. Uh, so, and in that regard, your comment is actually really good because this one is so plain. This isn't like, I'm trying to think it was the one I hate so much is you're not allowed to end a, uh, a sentence with a preposition. It's nonsense. It's just made up. We just made that up. You can end a sentence with a preposition. It makes sense. Fine. It might not sound as good. Okay. That's an opinion call. Uh, you know, so, you know, there's times where it's like, just, just let the grammar Nazi be a grammar Nazi and say, whatever, you know, I'm going to talk like a human. Um, but this one, it really is so backwards to say it the other way around. So I could not care less about whatever it was that I could not care less about, but apparently I care enough to answer a question about it now <laughs> and here. All right. We'll send that away. I just got rid of the wrong thing. Throw that back up there. Boo, 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 boo. And moving on to Lynn. Dear Pastor Fisk, Lynn says, I have heard the book of Isaiah referred to as in the Old Testament as the as the Old Testament gospel or the fifth gospel. Is there a word close in meaning to gospel in the Old Testament? Is there an Old Testament passage which you would consider to be the clearest in the Old Testament in proclaiming the gospel? That's a really good question and one I would rather give a lot more time to than I'm going to, especially because my guess is that there are guys who know their Hebrew a bit better than me who'd be able to give you a better answer on the meaning of the word gospel. They could probably give you like the closest thing to the literal meaning and then tie, you know, where that did get used in the history of the church and how that might be built upon in the present. I can't do that off the top of my head because what I can say is that the words the Old Testament are most is most concerned with are not is not the word gospel. Uh euangelion, you know, the good message um, uh, the, the blessing, but it's, it's a shouted blessing or a victory blessing, a heralded blessing, a preaching, uh, a loudspeaker, good thing. Uh, the old Testament isn't necessarily as, as much about that as its dynamic, uh, image. Uh, and you know, the word that comes to mind for me for the old Testament is you've heard it before for me is Kesed. You know, the big idea there is, is mercy or steadfast love, faithfulness, enduringness that God goes on and on. Uh, hear, O Israel, listen, hear, that's a big word. Listen, listen, uh, as opposed to preach, preach. Um, so, uh, so I don't know that I can answer that question of, is there a word with a meaning that I would tie to it? However, Oh, yeah, there are all sorts of passages that are very clear about the gospel. I think you'd have to say that the one that is most important to answer your question with is Genesis chapter 3, 15 and following, um, uh, 10 and following, and then 15 and following. Uh, the, I think it's 15, uh, the proto 
euangelion. I mean, the, the old theologians even called it the first gospel, uh, that the serpent will have its head crushed and that the, the seed, the son, uh, will have his foot bruised. That's the clearest passage in the Old Testament of the gospel. Uh, the, the, the serpent that deceived man is going to die, <laughs> uh, and that it's going to happen because of one man who comes from a woman who is going to be pierced by him. And uh, I, I don't think you can get more clear than that, honestly, uh, unless you just want to quibble about words. And then that's where the rest of the Bible is getting more clear about that. Like everything from that is, okay, let me make this more clear until you have the guy crucified and a pagan saying, yep, that's the son of God. All right, for sure. American accent and all. So is there a passage I would point to beyond this? There's lots, but I'm not going to be able to think of one good one off the top of my head because they gave you the one most correct answer you could possibly give. Is Isaiah the fifth gospel? I don't like that. I mean, the idea, you know, that, that diminishes things. The idea there is that, I mean, he is sort of the prophet par excellence in, but how is that even true? The back end of his book is so filled with beatific vision of what the salvation of God does, both in the man of sorrows and in the everlasting Zion, that for many, those images become ones that they, they allude to and long for, and they, they get associated with things like Advent and all that. But the thing is, Ezekiel's got that too. And so does Jeremiah. He's a little sadder usually, but but he he's actually got a lot of the same stuff and some of the verve that we really need. So to, to call it the fifth gospel, I think is really unfair. What, what he is, is the prophet. And that's what the New Testament calls him is the prophet, even though it doesn't mean the prophet that Moses refers to in the Pentateuch. Um, that's a different the prophet. But when the New Testament authors quote, sometimes even like, three authors like Micah and Amos and Isaiah, they'll still just say, as said by the prophet, right? And the idea here is that he's a summary, an image in which you can see all the other prophets. Like if there is something a prophet is doing, Isaiah sort of gets a piece of it, right? He's Mario of the prophets, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, goodness gracious, Jeremiah's Luigi, right? Uh, so, um, uh, I, I, they don't all line up. I want to put princess and, and toads to, to it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so, to call him that the fifth gospel is to diminish his role as like the entry into the prophetic call of the gospel. Comfort, comfort ye my people. The opening of the second half of Isaiah in chapter 40. Um, but every other book has this. Even Leviticus has gospel in it. It has promise from God about who we are. And I've said this before. I'll say it again right now. The great promise that I keep clinging to is it's really all of Psalm 125, but Psalm 125, 3. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land allotted to the justified, lest the justified reach out his hand into iniquity. That is a promise about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the reign of tyranny over this age, the scepter of wickedness, shall not rest. It, it, it can come to, but it's not going to remain on. The land, well, David writing this, this is Israel right? The land of the Jews, the land of, of the promised people of God. But the, see, in, in Jesus going into the earth in Israel, he is the land as Adam was from the land. So Adam comes from the land again in Jesus, right? So the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land allotted to the justified. Who's the true justified one? The one who's justified by faith alone or the one who's justified by his works? First, Jesus justified by both faith and works as a true and perfect man. 
scepter of wickedness does not rest upon him, but he does take a rest, a Sabbath day, in the grave, and then comes out again, right? Uh, Shall not rest upon the land allotted to the justified, lest the justified reach out his hand into iniquity, so that those who are declared to be good in God not be evil, he will not allow evil to remain. And so the land, Jesus, his body coming out again, is now the new promised land, which, take eat, this is my body, kind of has something to do with that. But believe Jesus is risen, that has something to do with it too, right? Uh, so he, that land, has come out of the grave, and the scepter of wickedness is no longer on him at all. In fact, he holds the scepter of righteousness. So that you might know, with your Lord firm in hand, yeah, um, that in this day and age, the tribe you belong to, uh, the scepter that rules over you, cannot long endure under the wickedness that you see, because if it did, you would fall away. And the Lord won't let it. What does that mean? Is he going to give you the answer you want? Not necessarily, right? Uh, But what he's going to give you is the answer you need. And I don't mean to quote the Rolling Stones, because usually they're lying to you, but they're right. They're right when they say you can't always get what you want. Uh, And uh, they should have said, the Lord Jesus, he gives you what you need. So, um, Yeah, so much gospel in that Old Testament. So much there. CJ says this. I got a history subject for ya to cover. Thank you, CJ. The latest Joe Rogan podcast. Oh, 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 oh. Is this it? Is this it? This is it. Hold on, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. And on the other side of this, me and Joe Rogan, we're going to go head to head on mushrooms, the Lord's Supper, and um, why you can get away saying anything as long as it's not in the Bible. Don't go away. All right, I got a super chat here to throw out. Uh, Ronox924 says, Sec- <laughs> My Latin is really not good. Seki, seek veritas et vita, podcast via. I'm going to guess. It's it seek out truth, or seek the truth out of truth, or seek with truth out of truth. Uh, this is the way. Is that right? Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear what that really means from someone else. But we're going to go to uh, this question right here from CJ. Again, we, we started on the other side. He would like me to refute. Jesus was a mushroom experience and the Eucharist was mushroom wine profanity uh, from Joe Rogan. So, well, I, I will do my best to refute it. It's kind of like asking me to refute aliens existing. Yeah, uh, a little bit. But uh, let's see here. We have two videos to watch. I will do what I can to not break in. I don't know. There's got to be a way to have me be able to pause and talk in the middle of it. And this is new to me to try to do this here. So let's, let's see what happens. We'll just, we'll just try it like this. Whoa. So the speculation is that there's some sort of a psychedelic or a fungi or something that's in the wine that's causing them to die, and they're using it recre- recreationally, and they're, they're trying to discourage this. That's, that, that's how I read it. And it's, it's, and it's not just based on a random read of, of this one line in Corinthians. It's based on an understanding of, of, of what Greek wine actually was, how far back it goes, which is centuries and centuries before this, how it was mixed, what it was mixed with. Um, because it was totally a Greek movement from the start, had nothing to do with the Jews and their Passover meal. Why would you not look at Greek mystery religion to find, figure out where the Christians got their ideas? Clearly, they just came out of Platonism. I mean, it's, it's, this is fun. So, so they're talking about 1 Corinthians 11, which is a passage most Christians ignore, by the way, on numbers of levels. One is that it talks very clearly about man and woman and how we are not the same and how man is the head over woman, how a patriarchy is the way that God built the world to work. And even though the current zeitgeist is all about the anti-patriarchy, uh, just go look up the Black Lives Matter official statements, uh, the ones that they still, uh, the ones they had up, they took some of them away. Um, 
In any case, the hatred patriarchy, God built that into creation, is there in 1 Corinthians 11, right at the start, and it shows you that it's there by insisting that women look different than men, generally in their daily lives, and that Paul even goes so far as to say, it doesn't really matter how you conclude this one, you just need to conclude this the same way as everybody else who's not, not a Christian, and not look like those who are saying, if you look like this, you're not a Christian, and that's why we look like this, like, you shouldn't try to look like that, right? So he says that, but but in it, the only thing that matters is you understand that a man and a woman are different, and that the man should look like a man and the woman should look like a woman. We tend to ignore that. And then right after that comes the whole passage on the Lord's Supper in which Paul repeats what is said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, who all speak about Jesus on the night he was betrayed, taking bread, taking wine, giving thanks, having a connection point to this Passover, Pascha suffering meal of a lamb slaughtered for the sake of the Exodus and the angel of death passing over uh, or leaving behind uh, the firstborn sons who would live while others would die. Like all that's going on in this thing. Paul reconfesses this one more time, the fourth time you get this in scripture. And then he goes on to give some instructions about why things are not going so well for them. And he, he says, you know, you're getting drunk on the wine. That's not cool. Remember, there's all this other stuff going on from beforehand. Like that guy's married his mom. That was kind of weird. You, you were supposed to not let that happen. You know, so there's a lot of weird going on here. But at the heart of it, at the heart of this text, he says something that I, I'm like, I didn't watch the whole thing, but my guess is these guys didn't get into, which is that if you do not discern the body of Jesus, it says it very clear. If you do not discern the body, you drink judgment on yourself. Paul's writing of this text is to say to a group of people that if you do not discern the body, you drink judgment on yourself. And then he says, this is why some of you have fallen asleep. Some of you have died, right? Now, the assumption right off the bat is that this means that Christians in the early church were dying at the Lord's Supper. We don't have a lot of tradition to support this, even from Christians. You don't have much other scripture to support this, really any at all. So is it, is it possible that death to a Christian is worse than death? Is it possible that there's something that Christians talk about as being death in the Bible that is more than bodily death? And the answer is yes. It's called falling away from the faith. So before you go running off into Greek mystery religion to try to prove that someone's spiking the Lord's Supper with mushrooms in these secret conventicles that nobody is allowed to go into because you're going to kill them if you see what they're doing and all they're doing is drinking wine and eating bread and calling it the body and blood of God so that you think they're eating like the, the, the stuff we actually find doesn't accuse them of doing what all the pagans are doing. It accuses them of not being the pagans and eating actual human sacrifices, the blood of a son, they say. This is the accusations that are defended in the first century. Now, we're going to go on with this, though, because what I love is how the nonsense of the argument. Oh, I'm not just making this up. Okay. Um, where is this in Hebrew tradition? They're going to go on. Okay, so Moses, I may have heard Rogan say this before too. You know, Moses just smelled some acacia wood burning and that was the burning bush. And so he just got high and that was his connection with God. Like, you have to play so fast and loose with everything, including your own logic. We'll, we'll see if, we'll see if I can demonstrate this on the other side. But before, I, I want to be, I want to be grateful to these guys. I want to go back here. Whoa. So... The speculation is that there's some sort of a psychedelic or a fungi or something that's in the wine that's causing them to die in their now. I want to I want to go like level up on crazy here. We'll get the crazy here out of the way so I can level up on crazy. The speculation is Joe says that there's something in the wine besides the wine. 
Is that what it does? It seem like the text says there's something in the wine besides the wine that has a supernatural effect on people. Does did it, does it seem like that's the speculation that the pagans find when they look at the? T- See what I'm saying there? Do you, do you hear this? Using it recreally, recreationally, and they're they're trying to discourage this. And, and so you shouldn't drink it recreationally. Do we drink the Lord's Supper recreationally? Of course we don't. Why? Because of this, right? That's that. That's how I read it. Ah, and good, good. Yeah, you're actually right. But you think it's mushrooms. I think it's Jesus. I mean, you know, <laughs> for what that's worth. We got one more. We've just not been given the straight scoop about about our past. Uh, sometimes it's uh, just purely the way that scholars work, that academics work. And, and sometimes I think in the case of Christianity, it is actually a kind of conspiracy. I think that. Um, yes, I'm with you. But then, yeah a deliberate effort to cover up the role of psychedelics. And you could see why priests in the developing Roman Catholic faith who've already pulled on the jackboot of the Roman Empire. So you're not talking about Christianity at the moment, right? You're talking about the jackboot of the Roman Empire. We're at late 300s, early 400s into 700s is the discussion. Just so we know, we're like, we're like, Two U.S. empire lifetimes removed from the events while we're claiming that this is like the universal thing. could see why they wouldn't like uh, their congregations using psychedelics, because when you use psychedelics, you have a direct experience of the divine. And hey, you don't need that priest anymore. This is my favorite thing. This is the dumbest argument. I'm sorry. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know who he is. He's probably really intelligent. And most of the work he's done, we could probably use it. It's probably interesting to see what the pagans were trying to do with psychedelics to the Christians during these times. That would be interesting. Okay. But, but you're telling me, right. So you're saying that the Roman Catholic church in the four twenties, and I'm just going to say that on purpose for fun, right? The Roman Catholic church in the four twenties had figured out that they had spiked the wine so that everyone who drank the Lord's supper had special psychedelic experiences of God. And they decided that that was in the way of their mission to control people's minds and make them think they're getting God from them. Do you see how that's backwards? If I'm a priest and I'm a conspiracy priest who wants to build power and convince you, I speak for God, I want you to drink out of a cup that makes you feel something. One of the most frustrating things about Christianity is having to have people believe it's doing something with that cup when nobody can feel any of it. It's also the miracle that shows that it's doing something. Because we're all doing it. And believing that something's happening. Try that one on, Joe. Before you go after me, this stuff's nonsense. Get a real scholar on. The priest as an intermediary between you and the divine becomes becomes redundant. Uh, and, and I think that there was a concerted effort to cover up the role of psychedelics in early Christianity and to present a different narrative, which it was purely... Okay. So, so the idea that the priest is, is threatened as an intermediary is a modern idea. Like, the thought he's proposing can't happen before, like, 1600. This is nonsense to think that this was an actual argument that was going on back then. That they're afraid people are going to figure out gods don't really exist and atheism's the real thing, so we better consolidate our atheistic power, our non-atheistic power. That's not the pre-Middle Ages world that's going on. People are, are just trying to survive. The, the empire is collapsing around them. It's a lot like what we see today, where you see a fragmentation. Like, once upon a time, you lived in Ireland and the Romans made roads, and right now you're watching all of them leave, and the Vikings are over there. 
and you have to stay here, right? And so you have to governize now. That reality was happening for about 200 years, right? And in that time, the structures of the Roman governance and the church were kind of fused. There's all sorts of stuff that happens. But to, to try to like paint with the broad brush back into the early church, the idea that they're like, that they're spiking the wine and that, that they, they stopped doing it. This is the best part. They stopped doing it because it wasn't working to make people feel God in the Lord's Supper or it worked too well or something. They could do it at home. Well, let me give you one more piece about this. This poor gentleman, I'll get him. Let's see if I can get, not make my on him. How do I get rid of this? Go away. No. No, I did it before, like this. I'm going to lose my thought now. I lost the thought and trying to get over there. Ah, come now. This way, right here. Resume last video. The the bread and the wine, the blood and the and the body of Christ. That priest anymore. The priest as an intermediary between. Oh, that's it, that's it, that's it. Okay, so this is the other thing about the modern lie. So what he's saying is that the priest got worried that uh, if people had drugs in the Lord's Supper, then they'd just want the Lord's Supper and the priest wouldn't be needed anymore. Like, I don't know any pagan system anywhere where they use drugs and have shamans and witch doctors where you don't need the intermediary who's kind of used to being on the drug all the time and can lead you through it. So there's that reality that's just kind of normal history and not some modern narrative you're making up and foisting on the past because you hate authority in the fourth commandment and don't want to have to listen to anybody except yourself, which is really what's going on here. It's an attack on the idea that there are levels of authority that must be there for us to be be within them. Uh, And so uh, what you think is you can create a world where there is no speaker and listener, but instead we all are just speaking at the same time. We're all just listening at the same time. It's all kind of this non-binary reality. But what that is is chaos. So while you're sitting here talking about how there was this conspiracy to make it so that no one could really do anything, they had to listen to the holy man, you're the holy man. You and Rogan right there, you're the holy man, intermediating for God and telling people the answer is drugs. Ha! <laughs> right? Which, by the way, if you need certain types of healthcare, drugs can be very valuable. Take a Tylenol, drink a cup of coffee, right? It, 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 and frankly, I'll be right on this with it too. I am not convinced that psilocybin, psychedelic mushrooms, do not have a place in psychotherapy, and counseling care for those with near-death experiences, with some traumatic trust disorders. There's work being done on this. Sadly, it's only pagans that do this work because Christians got their heads in the hole. And then the pagans come out and they say, well, it's actually God, too. And then they turn it into religion and everyone's going to believe it because they're like, look, you eat the mushroom, it's God. And like, yeah, it feels like it. And that's paganism. Hello. So yeah, what you guys are observing, Joe and your friend, is definitely what happens in every pagan religion ever. I would contend if you try going through the Hebrew and the, and, and the Jewish understanding of what's going on into the Old Testament, into the New Testament, as the New Testament itself tells you to do, which means you got to go into the Greek, um, and not go into the Greek mystery religions, but go into the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, so you can understand the diaspora and how all that meal plays into what Jesus is doing and how these guys who are like dying for the faith, the last they're going to do is start spiking the wine. What wine was used in the Lord's Supper at the Passover? If it was not a spiked Greek wine, your entire show is just a fraud, Joe. So I hope the guy did that kind of research. I don't know. I've not done that research. It seems pretty insane to me that a group that was like, uh, went to war to throw off Antiochus Epiphanes IV because of what he did to their temple is going to be spiking their wine with pagan rituals uh, in, in their, like one of their three highest festivals that all are part of them resisting the empire and saying, we don't belong, kill us anyway. I, I just don't see it, right? And you're like, well, I did some research. In this but yeah, yeah, you're okay. Yeah, yeah, you're okay. Here's what I want to do 
uh, to close. Although, unfortunately, here, oh, that one, this one, my camera is still going to need some work. I, I was going to say, oh, let's do this real fast. So, does this work? Behold. You can see what I've done. I have taped my camera onto my light. I tried it on that thing, the, the mic thing. It was too far away. Excuse me, and you could not see. Here again, it's, it's, as you'll see, it's too far away. And I guess i got to memorize the right buttons here. <laughs> and you will not be able to see as well as, as I would like. So if you can think of something that would like be its own arm mount, if you can find one you know is going to work. It's, uh, yes, I can Google. I can go to Amazon. <sighs> I can go to Amazon and I can type in arm to have a camera. And I can see the first one and I can buy it. And I can know that it's junk and it comes and it won't work. <laughs> or I can ask you who maybe love this kind of thing to tell me which one I should get that'll really work. I need an arm to attach a camera to that I can move that camera anywhere in a four foot by three foot by two foot box um, mounted to a desk or a ceiling. Um, Send it to redfist.com slash contact, not it, but a link so I can buy one. And uh, you will be much thanked, not only by me, but by the entire world. But see, it took that long for me to learn how to hit the right button. Here we go. Talk them into it. We're going to do a little bit of this this morning. We're moving into a new section, and I'm kind of excited about it. Uh, as I've been working on reminding myself of the key points, because I preach on them every week, um, what I have discovered is that I needed to reorder what I've been saying up to this point, and that the opening of the book, that Christianity Promises Conversion, is really the, the key point you got to get right off the bat. That Christianity is a reality. Hold on. Can I do this? Can we split? No, no, no. Oh, wait. I know how to do it. There we go. Oh, but I did it wrong. There it is. All right. Um, there we go. Christianity promises conversion. So. Oh, my goodness. There we go. Oh, uh, believing this is the key to every conversation you have with someone who's not a Christian about Jesus. Like you have to start by believing that Christianity is a promise of conversion and that that's what happens as Christianity. It never is anything more or less than this. Is there a law in Christianity? Of course. What's the promise? That you're going to live a different life, right? So it's all there as a promise. And that promise means you are going one way and you start going a different way. You convert. You change your truth. Veritas. So, that occurs, this promise of conversion, mostly by means of he has risen. Why do I say that? Because in the book of Acts, whenever any apostle talks, that's what he says. (laughs) Whatever else they say, he has risen comes out in some way, shape, or form. I'm kind of convinced it's the message once for all delivered to the saints. I believe the cross is inside of he has risen. You can't have a risen Christ who isn't crucified, so don't tell me I'm denying the cross. That's the way Lutherans like to argue with themselves. Um, and it just, it just ruins the hearers when we do that. Uh, the fact is that he is risen is what Paul says in Second Timothy when he says, this is a trustworthy saying, and hold on to this, uh, pass this on, uh, Christ, son of David, risen from the dead, as in my gospel. So when we say that, that is the promise, he is risen, of a past event that will convert us to its future, right? Now, Christianity expects opposition to this. That's all we, what we've done so far, right? Christianity knows we know that people aren't going to listen to what we say. We know that the devil isn't going to hear what we say. We know that people who are non-Christians are going to resist and argue irrationally so. But then, that's kind of the new one here. <laughs> Number three, Christianity expects opposition 
is less than and not equal to, number one, Christianity promises conversion. Right. So, so while, ah, yeah, you know there's opposition, you also know it won't only be opposition, there will be conversion. All right? So that's the first section. And it's only a few pages, a few devotions long. Could they be in a better order? Probably. Could they be better written? Of course they could. Will they be? Yes. But the ideas are what matter. Conversion results from conversation. This is where we got to go next. So to convert, to join truth, comes from to have a truth-joining reality? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the grammar is doing there. But conversation is the only way one converts to anything at all. Let's see if we can get this guy down a little more. You cannot do it. We'll try to come up. Does that work? Does that work? It doesn't. Look, coffee, coffee everywhere. Coffee near and far. Conversions. That a man become aware he is a Christian is the work of only one person within this age, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. What? Isn't it the work of Jesus? Yes, it is. How does Jesus work in this age? By sending his Holy Spirit. Who is his Holy Spirit? Just a power? Just some ethereal being? No, he's a third person of the Trinity. So have a little trust in the Holy Spirit for once. Stop thinking he's some juju you can find in the sky and believe that the person who is the Holy Spirit, who is active in the Holy Scriptures as the Scriptures teach, is the only one, the only one who can control where my book is, is the only one within this age, who can make a man a Christian? The only one. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Sorry, trying here. I can't read it if I put it there. That's the problem. So uh, the washing of regeneration that makes believers into Christians is the Holy Spirit's operation upon all mankind. Now, I believe that happens in baptism. I believe it happens in preaching too. I believe it specifically is about baptism being a preaching that never ends. But the point is, again, who's operating here? Who's the one we should be trusting here? Who's the one converting who here? This operation is that which the faithful, oh my goodness, it's so inverted. I'm sorry if you're watching this. It's got to be just death to you. It's death to me. This operation, oh, for pity's sakes. I'm just going to read you. Uh, <laughs> uh, this operation is that which the faithful, oh, I, hold on. I'll show you. I'll show you. I got to show you now. See these like brackets on my red right there? That's me saying, I should have crossed it out. Everything that came before that first bracket more or less needs to be cut. I just got, it's like a really, really excessive language. So when you're reading along, feel free to cross that out. I'm going to do it right now. Where's my pen? Where's my pen? No pen. There it is. There we go. Feel free. Write with me. That is just me saying it a really long way. The point is that men who have done their duty deserve no profit. That's the point. Men who have done their duty deserve no profit. In the end, they have only done what they were created to do. What fool? (laughs) What fool rewards the chair that he has built for being a chair? The Christian person is not only the creation of Almighty God. That is, you're not only created by God, the one whom God created. You're also his redemption. That is, you're the one whom God is and has redeemed. The Christian, though not the cause of salvation, that turned two pages. I skipped a word. The Christian, though not the cause of salvation from death, is nonetheless a member of full participation in its effects. Follow that. That's that's a sentence to read again, and I know my moving book is making that worse. The Christian, though not a cause of salvation from death, is nonetheless a member of full participation in its effects. You don't cause resurrection, but you participate in resurrection. That's what Christianity is from the beginning, from the first faith. This action, 
This action affects itself, not outside, but inside the heart of the Christian, right? So when God works on you to believe, you believe what he says inside you, not outside you, inside you, right? Faith happens inside of you. This is caused. This action is caused not inside you, but outside you in the substantial speaking of the words of Jesus. So that faith arises in your heart from outside and yet is experienced inside. The old Lutherans would talk about this as subjective justification versus objective justification. If you want to hear Lutherans argue uh, with themselves about things that no one else cares about, <laughs> go, go Google that, that fight. It does matter when you deny one of those things as existing at all. But what we should know today, what you need to know, is not how Lutherans fight about big old terms, but how underneath those terms are real things. And the real thing is that as a Christian, you objectively are saved by grace alone without any merit on your own part that you can see, experience, feel outside of hearing he has risen said to you and knowing you believe it. Even the knowing part is just a result. It's the hearing it said that's the God doing it. And then uh, it is, again, as a Catholic Christian, I, I would say that baptism and the supper are him saying that to you really loudly in ways your body can't ignore. Uh, but then from that point on, it's not like you stop experiencing this and you have no impact or say. It's not like you have no mind or will that is being warred with and being warred on and being warred inside of by the Spirit. So that the Spirit working with your will, sometimes against your will, uh, what makes you do even that which you would not do, though it is the right thing to do. And Paul talks this way in multiple places about this, right? So the idea is to believe now. What I want you to get today from, from this section again on conversions, is that conversion happens when the Holy Spirit engages a mind from the outside with outside truth. And that outside truth, he has risen, goes into somebody and it being true completely redirects where their feet are going to go the rest of forever. We just need to believe that that's true first before we set about trying to convince people it's true. The more you got to convince someone that that's true, maybe the least less you are convinced it's true yourself. Maybe you don't need to answer every scoffer's foolish taunt. Uh, maybe instead it's enough to just know what the truth is and to watch the scoffer, you know, dance to his own peril and just not join him. Uh, especially if he won't listen. I mean, it's not your job to go die with him. It's your job to call it what it is. So I hope that helps. I think maybe the best thing in there. And if you're going to be in a, a conversation about converting other people to Christianity, remember, men who have done their duty have only done their duty. You do not reward a chair for being a chair. You're a Christian. Don't expect anything other than what all Christians get. What do you get? A creed. He is risen. You are paid for. He won't be long now. You're immortal. The water seals it. The bread, the wine, they feed it. This is Christianity and it's free for everyone to join. Cling to that reality and believe that it will convert people. And then when they don't convert, believe they're just, they're just fools then. They're wrong. They don't hear the fact that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has risen from the dead. They don't even want to know. They're disinterested. Well, then wait. Wait. Because your interest and your prayers will do a lot more uh, than arguing arguing with the goats, yeah, uh, as it were. I think, I feel like I perhaps have to scroll back and see if there are any other Super Chats that I have missed this morning. I do not see any. We are closing in on a three-hour show. We hit Joe Rogan. We hit, what? I can't even think of it all. There's so many other things. Um, someone left a comment the other week. You know, I, uh, I, I smart noted, that is, I took notes on and then took notes on my notes from your show, and it was so all over the place and yet made sense. <laughs> I was like, Exactly. Uh, 
I pray that it's been a valuable Saturday morning chill for you that as opposed to what cartoons, commercials, and uh, sugar highs that might lead you to despair, that you walk away from today with your head lifted high, knowing that while you certainly are walking through a puddle of muck everywhere in the world, it is not yours to wallow in. I will even say it, that you are not authorized to despair. But rather, because your king is alive and therefore you are alive too, you are authorized in the despair to... Look down your nose at it. Lift up your eyes and believe that you see that final day approaching. And sooner now than it was a moment ago. Rock on. Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? <laughs>